Hi, everyone. I'm Lynn. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm delighted to be here tonight sober through a loving God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. David, every convention or most conventions has a voice. Whatever your daytime job is, don't give it up. I'm really delighted to be here. You know, I was thinking today, I said this approximately 18 years ago, and I'm not real sure of that time frame, but uh, when I first came to the my first Florida State Convention, which was held at the Breakers, I left the convention thinking that this is the finest convention I've ever been to. I had the privilege of being in Boca in 1984, and nothing changed my mind. And I want to tell you that I've had the opportunity to go to quite a few in the North American continent. And I mean this, and I've told the committee this, but from the bottom of my heart, I don't know of one that's any better. Where you make your guests feel welcome, where you're hospitable, where everything is so well arranged and organized than what you do at the Florida State Convention. I want to thank the entire committee for their kindness. Roger, Roger's not as worried as he was Wednesday. <laughs> he, uh, I want to thank Bill Berry for the invitation, and I found out that Liz had a lot to do with that. I want to thank Bill Baker for hosting both Allison and myself. <clears throat> And Allison is my 21-year-old daughter who is with me, and I'm so pleased about that. I have renewed a lot of old friendships the last couple of days. And you know, I am one that have, I am so grateful to the old-timers in Alcoholics Anonymous because they saved my life. And a bonding has gone on in my life through this fellowship that I've never experienced or never will anywhere else. This is the greatest single happening in my life, and it sits right at the core of my being. And I'll be forever grateful. There are a couple of people that I go way, way back with that are family to me. And I thought yesterday, I thought, you know, I'm going to be in Florida and I'm not going to see them. Well, this morning they showed up. And it's Julie and Julian Bosserman, and I just absolutely love them to death. Where are you? Here they are. I absolutely love them. Julian has 45 years, and behind him is a great lady, Julie. And I want to tell you that if any of you miss the old-timers meeting, it's at any conference, it's my very favorite. And I was told today that there are 35 people registered at this convention so far that have over 30 years of sobriety. And that's fantastic. 
And we all have Eskimos, and I want to tell you one of the loveliest ladies I've ever known. She will not be here for the old-timers meeting tomorrow. She just came up for today, and I love her a lot. And it's Eve Marsh, and she has 47 years. Stand up, Eve. I love you. Thank God for these people. Because these are the people that laid the trail for all of us. A lady asked me uh, yesterday, poolside, she said, aren't you speaking? I said, yes. She said, are you nervous? I said, not yet. <laughs> I've had several people ask me today about my condition. <laughs> and I said, not yet. I want to tell you that I don't get as nervous as I used to. But I usually know about 30 minutes before kickoff. And tonight was no different. I've been to the bathroom three times, and the last two times I just stood there. <laughs> Any alcoholic, Alanon, Alateen that gets up behind one of these podiums and tells you that they don't get a little nervous, you walk away from them quickly because they're going to lie to you about other things, too. I've loved all of the speakers, but I tell you the thought I've had, and you bring more in here than any convention I know of from all over, from Wednesday through Sunday, other than the international. But I was thinking today of the speakers that are here, you could really hold three to four separate conventions. It's fantastic. And I've loved every minute of it. And Sonny, last night, I was out at the pool late yesterday, and I didn't know Sonny was a speaker, and he didn't know I was a speaker, and we just got to, to chatting. I didn't know his story, or I'd have moved away from him, I can assure you of that. <laughs> I, uh... God Almighty, can you imagine being on the streets of New York and having a cop like that come up and arrest you? And he immediately announced from the podium last night that he, you know, he lived, you heard his story, and he lived in Manhattan all these years, and then he met this lovely lady, and now he's living in Buffalo. And he immediately let everyone know he wanted to relocate to Florida. Well, I had a nice long chat with his wife at the pool today. And I won't tell you exactly what she said to me. She said, Lynn, he came to Florida with me, and I informed him this morning that he is going home with me. <coughs> We alcoholics are a little impulsive. So, Sonny, give it up. You're going to have a wonderful winter in Buffalo next year. <laughs> I'm going to do what it tells us to do in the book, and that's to tell what it used to be like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like today. And I love the theme of this convention because, you see, I have come to know and to believe that sobriety is a gift. And if I ever think that I had anything to do with my getting back to Alcoholics Anonymous or if I think that I've had anything to do with my staying here, <clears throat> all I have to do is to remember from whence I come up. 
Because the longer I'm around, the more totally convinced I am that it's a gift and that it's God-given. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm a Californian by residence, a Kentuckian by birth, and an alcoholic by absorption. And I drank as much as I could for as long as I could, and it damn near killed me. I'm a liar, cheat, and a thief, and a con man, and a phony, and a user, and abuser of people. And I had a tendency to drink. (laughs) I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and everything's been wonderful ever since. And that laugh you heard was from one of your other California speakers. (laughs) But you know, I was raised in a home where I was given a lot of love, probably too much. My story is one of drinking at both ends of the spectrum. And I tell you, basically what I talk about is the last two and a half to three years of my drunkenness, because that's what I choose to remember. Because you see, I know where I am tonight. As I stand here at this Florida State Convention... But what I never want to forget is from whence I come. So I talk about what I really choose to remember, which is where the bottle took me. But you know, I had every opportunity that a human could ever want in life, and I was given that. And it was never enough, because the more I had, the more I wanted. More, more, more. I built a wall around Lynn Wilder very early in life, and it was like the Rock of Gibraltar. But inwardly where I lived, I felt different, and I didn't even know that. I wasn't even aware of that at the time. And I discovered that magic elixir called booze, and booze very simply brought my insides up to the way I appeared to you outwardly, and I could operate within that comfort zone. I could be all things to all people, and I tried to do this for a lot of years. And to a lot of people, I was successful, but I never felt like it. Alcohol was the greatest friend I ever had until it turned on me. The greatest friend I ever had because it enabled me to fit in, it enabled me to function, it enabled me to feel comfortable. Because you see, the four C's really characterize my drinking. Because I drank in the beginning for comfort, then I drank for courage, then I crossed that line from controlled to uncontrolled drinking, and I drank compulsively. And the end result in every area of my life was total corruption. Change should have been my middle name because when I became uncomfortable in any given area of my life, I made a change. In other words, I was a runner, a drinker, and a drunk for a lot of years. And I never knew from whom or from, from what until after I was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was always looking for it. And it didn't matter whether it was in Lexington, Kentucky, in New York City, in Raleigh, North Carolina, in Atlanta, in Fort Lauderdale, in Des Moines, in Dallas, in Phoenix, in San Francisco, or in Los Angeles. I was always looking for it. And I blamed everyone in my life. I tell you what my philosophy is today, and it has been for a long, long time. Whatever is working for you, keep doing it. And only you know that. Because I know what works best for me. And it's the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Always has, always will. I'm not one that likes to look at the fact that maybe I was a victim or try to blame other people. I don't talk about being codependent or being from a dysfunctional family. You see, I've never had but two major problems in my entire life. And you're looking at one of them tonight and the other one was a bottle. And I haven't had that one day at a time for a long time. But I drank. And I didn't know the reasons I drank. I just knew that I drank. 
And it was over 30 years ago that I was first introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was here for all of the wrong reasons. Because I had conditions on my sobriety. I was here to try and get a family back, which I was losing. I was here to try and get my employer off my back. I was here to try and get friends and other family members off my back. I was here to get the heat off. You see, I didn't want to be alcoholic, and I certainly didn't want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And everything that you shared went in one ear and out the other because I wasn't seeing and I wasn't hearing and I didn't want to be. And you talked about all the things that happened to us if we be alcoholic and continue to drink. You talked about the loss of homes and jobs and families, the total insanity that goes with our illness, the loss of health, the jails, the institutions. And I said, not me, I'm different. And I want to tell you that I absolutely believe that I was different. And it was necessary for me to go back out for almost three years and to find out how different I was not. Because all of the things that you shared with me that could and would happen had to happen. And this is what I do not want to forget. And I thought it couldn't happen to me. It happens to any of us. Very early in life I made one determination that I can remember and that was I wanted to become a man. And my interpretation of a man is a guy that goes out in the world and competes and there's no such thing as failure. And I tried to operate within this framework for a lot of years and to a lot of people I was doing well. People told me for a lot of years what great potential I had. Len, you have great potential, but... You know, I got awful tired of hearing that. Len, you've got great potential, but... I had teachers, coaches. I had parents. I had friends. I got out in the business community. Community. I had uh, employers that told me that. Another thing they talked to me about very early before they talked to me about my drinking was my, were my attitudes. Then you need to change your attitudes. I was to hear that. And it reminds me of a little story of a country boy that uh, weighed 270 pounds and he was a big guy, about 6'5", and he married a little gal, weighed 100 pounds, soaking wet. And the first night of their honeymoon, he decided that he really needed to show her who was going to run things in their marriage and in their home. And he took his britches off and he threw them over on the bed. And he looked at her and he said, put them on. And she scratched her head and thought, well, maybe I better do it. And she went over and put one leg in and put the other leg in and pulled his pants all the way up over her head. And she looked at him and she said, you know good and well I can't fill your pants. And he said, that's exactly right. Don't you ever forget it and we'll have a long and a happy marriage. She very quietly turned and went over to the chest of drawers and got out a little pair of bikini panties. <laughs> Tossed those on the bed and said, now put these on. So you know he had to do it. He got one foot in and started to break out in a cold sweat and he got the other foot in. And he worked them up to right below his knees and he broke out in a cold sweat and he couldn't get them any further and... He couldn't stand it any longer. And he looked her right in the eye and he says, you know damn good and well I can't get in your panties. And she said, that's exactly right, big shot, and you're not going to either until you change your attitude. When I was first introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, they said, Lynn, we come in here and we have a change of attitudes. 
When I was brought back here on the fifth day of March 1965, it was suggested very strongly to me that AA not only meant Alcoholics Anonymous, but it meant altered attitudes. And it was at this point in my life that I really made a conscious effort to do something about my attitudes. But I want to share with you that everything I've learned in life, every lesson I've learned, I have to get out beyond it to see what the lesson was. But I can look back and was able to many years ago very clearly on this lesson. Because I want to tell you, as my behavior changed, my attitudes followed. And you know I'm such a great believer in that. We come in here and they tell us to act as if, but I'm a great believer and we come in here and we start acting differently regardless of how we feel. And that certainly was the case with me. But I continue to drink and to run and to do all the things you've done. If you've done it, I've done it. And if I haven't done it, I've thought about doing it. I was given some athletic ability and I used that for as long as I could. I not only was a user of alcohol and some of those magic tablets, I was a user of people, places, and things. And I did whatever was necessary to support my habit. I got out of school and it was expected I'd go into family business. Everything was set up for me and I turned my back on it to go out and to prove me to you. I spent a lot of years out there trying to prove me to you. After I was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for some time, I discovered I was desperately trying to prove me to me also, and I didn't even know that. But I went to work for a large company, and yes, they started to talk to me about my attitude. But you see, I'd grown up in a very strict home, a very strict religion. No, I'm not Irish Catholic. I do not suffer from that part of the illness. Excuse me, Father. <laughs> Hillary, where are you? 72. I must have misunderstood. He's gone to bed. Oh, I see him now. If that 72 is a two years a little too heavy, isn't it? Aren't you 70 today? Let's correct that because, God, I don't want anybody to go out here thinking you're 72 years old. You're 70 years old today. Thank you. All right. Anyway, I was not raised as an Irish Catholic. Mine's probably a lot worse because I was raised as a Southern Baptist. <laughs> and if alcohol did anything good for me, it got me out of that environment. <laughs> and I want to very quickly put a disclaimer on that because I've gotten in trouble with that. I say that in jest because I tell you my, my environment, my religion... None of that had anything to do with my alcoholism. I've already told you the two things that had to do with my alcoholism. But anyway, I continued on. And I went out to prove myself, and this company started to call me on the carpet and say things like, Lynn, why do you drink so much? Why do you do the things you do, say the things you say, act the way you act? And you know, I didn't have answers for them. And I've already told you that I had to make changes. Anytime I thought that someone was about to find out what I was all about, I would have to make a change. Whether it were a job change, a relationship change, a geographic change, whatever. I had even done that in college in changing schools. I would have to make changes. But there they started to talk to me a lot about that. And I had to make start making a lot of changes. I had an opportunity to get reinvolved in athletics as a so called quote leader of men unquote every day, and I was a drunk every night, the Jekyll and Hyde that we know so much about. And I was to lose that job as the direct result of my alcoholism, no less, no more. And I tried to go back to work for the oil company that had hired me and they didn't want me as a direct result of my alcoholism. No less, no more. And this pattern started to continue very quickly. I was to go back home and go into family business. 
My illness was progression, was progressing as we know it does. I looked around and all of my friends were married and I thought that was the answer and here I am an insecure, immature, irresponsible drunk. So I get married. <laughs> Unfortunately for the lady that was involved and we had a baby, a little baby girl out of that marriage. But she was to get out of that marriage very, very quickly, thank God. And I was to continue on. And I want to tell you that I did a lot of drinking in Broward and Dade County and a lot of my bad drinking and I'm not going to cover that tonight. But I was on the move constantly. And I'll tell you one more story and then I'm going to get sober. In 1963, in November, I came to. And I didn't know where I was except I could tell there was no doorknob on my side of the door. And I was in Milledgeville, Georgia, and I was there as a direct result of my alcoholism, and that's the Georgia Nuthouse. And no longer is that. I was told in North Carolina uh, two, three months ago, it's now a prison or something. But back then, it wasn't a treatment center. It was the Nuthouse. There weren't treatment, center, there weren't treatment centers around then. And you know, I was absolutely terrified. I was as scared as I've ever been in my life. And I was convinced they'd never let me out of there. And the way they treated you was with Librium and Thorazine. And you've heard about the Thorazine Shuffle, and I want to tell you, they gave you enough in there where if you got up and down the hall in a day, you'd had a hell of a day. <laughs> and I don't remember as I stand here tonight that they ever said anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or about alcoholism. But it didn't matter anyway, because you see, I'd already been introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I couldn't use that. And finally, on the ninth day of January, 1964... They let me out of there, and I was at the bus station in Milledgeville, and I had a bus ticket to Atlanta. And I called a man that, was a, that had hired me at this university, and he's still a good friend of mine today. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm in the bus station at Milledgeville. And he said, uh, are you coming to Atlanta? And I said, yes. And he said, Land, we're going to Lexington tomorrow, and that's where I'm from, and there's a seat on the airplane if you want to go with us. And he said, where are you staying tonight? I said, I don't have a place. He said, when you get off the bus, go to the YMCA. There'll be a bed. And I did. And the next morning, I met him at uh, Alexander Memorial Coliseum in Atlanta, and I rode to the airport with him, and we flew to Lexington. We immediately got off that airplane and went to Memorial Coliseum and did a, did a workout and then checked into the old Phoenix Hotel in downtown Lexington. And I sat around and talked to everyone and went through the pregame strategy and listened to it. And I also... And, had the opportunity to do the color commentation for the radio network for this school, and I've been fired for that from that as a direct result of my alcoholism. And we got up the next morning and we went out. It was a noon game and it was regionally televised. They just started to televise games then. <clears throat> and we played that game and I felt good and I was two days out of Milledgeville and I can tell you I knew that I would never, ever take another drink. Ever. Ever. We went back to the hotel after that game and sat around and I had dinner with some of the coaches and some of the other people and I went upstairs to go to bed because we had an 8 a.m. flight the next morning. And my alcoholic computer went on. I got in that bed and I turned the light off and it said, I wonder who's downstairs in the bluegrass lounge that I didn't see. And the other side said, Lynn, go to sleep. And I found myself getting up, dressing myself, riding that elevator to the lobby, crossing the lobby, going into that bluegrass lounge and knowing most of the people in there and standing there for the better part of an hour and drinking ginger ale. Step two, 
where we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. When they brought me back here, I had absolutely no problem with that. I had no problem with the insanity part of the illness. All I had to do was to remember this particular situation and many others. Because, you see, I found myself without a conscious thought of a drink going down those stairs across that that street into the Golden Horseshoe, which was another bar, and ordering a drink. Insanity, yes. They left and caught the plane the next morning, and then they took me out of that hotel about two days later. Within a week, I was in the city holdover, which is a better word uh, for the city jail. And there were two men standing there that had known me all of my life with that look in their eyes. What is it? And you know, I didn't know what to tell them. And they took me out of there and took me down and took me across the back parking lot into the Greyhound bus station. People put me on a lot of buses. And I'll never forget Tommy standing there, you know, and saying, Lynn, what is it? And you know, I didn't know what to tell him. And another old friend of mine, he still is today, John, said, Lynn, they've asked me to tell you that if you ever do the things you've done this past week and come back here, they're going to lock you up permanently. All as a direct result of my alcoholism, no less, no more. And I had to go on from there. Later that year in 1964, I got off an airplane at Los Angeles International and I stood right in the middle of my wardrobe. But I want to tell you, I was still defending my right to drink. I'd heard, I'd swung in and out of the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous all over these United States. When I'd get real sick, I'd run to AA and I would use the people within the fellowship. But I never want to forget the last seven to seven and a half months of my drunkenness. Because you see, it couldn't happen to a guy like me. It can happen to any of us if we live. Because I literally was on the streets. And I was even more terrified than when I was in Milledgeville, but there I was. And I swung in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a lot of problems. And yeah, I was still too young to be an alcoholic, but I was almost dead. And the last place that I ended up was a place in Los Angeles called the Cecil Hotel, which is the Skid Row Hotel. And I was living in a room with three other guys. We were all drinking wine and I was put on the street. Not by the hotel, but by the other winos. <laughs> and I was to come to a couple of days later in a little room at 3rd in Vermont in Los Angeles. And standing over me were two sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hadn't called them. And I always like to tell that so I can remember it. Because you see, in the end, the bottle beat me to death. But the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous was still there. And these men took me to Central Receiving on 6th Street and transferred me to County Hospital and then took me out of County Hospital into a little sanitarium on Fairfax Avenue called the Beverly Lake. And a doctor stood at my bed and he told me what I'd been hearing for two to three years. I knew that I was dying. But you see, I knew there was no God because if there were a God, why was I in the shape I was in? I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work because I'd swung in and out of the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was still drunk. But somewhere down at the very depth of my being, I cried out in silent desperation, don't let me die. 
And I was literally brought back to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been here ever since. And you see, that's why I say I've had nothing to do with it, and I know that. And I had a lot of physical problems as a direct result of this disease. And I had to live in what we call now a halfway house. We didn't call them that then. For about three months, and I had to go to a doctor five days a week where I was given shots and treatment. And I finally was released from there, and I moved out in an area of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley. And I moved in with two other sober alcoholics who were meeting their responsibilities. They had jobs, and they were going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. All I was capable of doing was I would get up every morning, dress myself, and walk two and a half miles to the North Hollywood Clubhouse, which is still there today. And it's an old, old clubhouse where AA meetings and Al-Anon meetings are held in California. And I would be there waiting for the door to open, and then I would walk in and sit down, and I would have with clenched fist and gritting my teeth, And not wanting what you had, and the old-timers would start in, but knowing that I couldn't go back out. And at noon, I would be sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, either at that club, or I'd catch a ride with somebody to the old nest, or I'd go over the hill to 26 and Broadway in Santa Monica, or I would be somewhere. And that night, I would be in another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I would go to bed, and I would get up the next day and repeat the process. And the old-timers started to surround me. And I had the great privilege a couple of weeks ago to speak at one of the oldest groups in California. And it was the meeting where I was taken. It's the Arlington group when they took me out of that sanitarium. And there were men in that group that they're no longer alive today with the exception of one. And they would tell me things like, Lynn, Alcoholics Anonymous is not an employment agency. It's not the dating game and it's not a finance company. It's a place to come and to get sober and to stay sober a day at a time. And it's here for the taking, and if you want what we have, it's free. And there's a big old guy, a lot taller than I am, in California named Jack P. He's still alive, and he would lean over and say, Lynn, as high as we get in Alcoholics Anonymous is sober. And I needed to hear things like that. They told me when they brought me back here to tell the truth. And I said, which truth? Because you see, I've been living so many lives, I didn't know the truth. But I didn't pick up the first drink, you know, and that's what we're all about. And little by little, things started to happen. There was a group that appointed themselves to me. Things have changed in Alcoholics Anonymous, and a lot of them for the good. And I was talking to Eve about it before before the meeting. And Julian and I had breakfast this morning together, and uh, he's hardcore, still is. Thank God for the old-timers like him. But they surrounded me one night and they said, Lynn, we've been watching you and I knew I was in trouble. They said, we think you should get a job. (laughs) And I said, you know, it's funny you should bring that up because I've been in the process of putting a resume together. (laughs) They said, no, just get a job. You see, I've been living from drink to drink for two years, so but I'm putting a resume together, right? And that's been a full-time job. And they told me how to do that. They said, you get the Los Angeles Times out every day, and you go to the Help Wanted ads, and you go down there, and you check the, the jobs, and you call, and you make an interview, and you show up, and the first person that offers you a job, you take it. Well, I followed that advice, and I started down the Help Wanted ad, and I would check sales manager. district manager and I want to tell you something that I really had never ever looked at the underlying causes of my illness 
I know that a lot of people get here knowing the reasons they drank and used. I did not. I just said, give me another, give me another, give me another. But boy, when I got here and it started to unfold, everything started to surface, particularly the fear that had been going on in my life for a lot of years. The fear of rejection, the fear of exposure, and the fear of failure. But I never thought about when people walked up to me and said, Lynn, how are you doing? To, to, to look at them and say, I'm having tremendous feelings of impending doom. <laughs> or I'm terrified to go to the bathroom alone. <laughs> or I can't get out of the shower in the morning without a drink. You know... I never thought about that. And this all started to surface. And when the fear factor really started to surface is when I was very early in my sobriety, I was to meet two men who really were my mentors. And one was a man from Laguna Beach, California, where I'm from. And I'd heard him speak and I used to follow him around and I said, no one can live the way that man talks. And, you know, I started to listen to him. And I said, no one can live that way. And I started to talk to people that knew him and they said, that's the way he lives. And I want to tell you, that was the way he lived. The people that have attracted me over the years are not the people that sound so great at these podiums, are not the people that sound so eloquent in discussion meetings and so glib. But I watch the people that are out there in their day-to-day living and what they're doing with this program. I want to tell you those are the people that have attracted me and thank God for them. And this man was a great attraction to people all over this world. He was the greatest single example I've ever known of living this program. I was introduced to a Catholic priest whose name was Barney Nixon. As a matter of fact, I was introduced to him 27 years ago. I was taken to a retreat, a Jesuit retreat house. And for a Southern Baptist to go to a Catholic retreat house, I was terrified enough. (laughs) And this man was an alcoholic and he was a priest and he and I became one and he was the greatest teacher that I have ever met of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he literally led me out of the wilderness. I'm going back to California this next weekend. Bill, my friend Bill, is going to be there. And it's this will be my 28th retreat that I've been going back up there. And we'll have 111, 112 men there next weekend. And you know, these are some of the fringe benefits. But thank God for these people. There was a man named Eddie Bolin who used to eat nails for breakfast and I couldn't stand him. And he came to me in a meeting one night. He said, be at my house at 6.30 next Tuesday. And when they told you to do something back in those days, you did it. And I showed up and he took me through the 12 steps, one at a time, and told me not to ask questions, not to say anything. And you know, I'm grateful for that type of leadership and for the experience I had. Because I don't care what goes in our li- on in our lives. All of us know that the solution are in those steps. And a lot of things started to happen. Finally, about three weeks later, after I had uh, not interviewed anyone, but told all those old-timers I was interviewing daily, they knew. I didn't know they knew. They'd say, Len, how'd the interview process go? I'd say, great. I had three interviews today. I had none. Because you said, see, I had all of that fear going. On an exceptional day, I could dial a number and get an appointment, but I could never show up for an interview. I was unemployed and unemployable. They finally came to me one Friday night. And said, Lynn, it's real apparent to us you can't get a job. I said, I got a job offer today. They said, what company? I said, Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company. I'd never darkened their doors. They'd, they'd been advertising a lot in the paper, though. 
They didn't miss a beat. They said, that's fine, Lynn, but in the interim, we got a job for you. <laughs> and I went to, I went to uh, work as a janitor in that church three days a week. And I was fired from that job very quickly. I want to tell you that I failed many times out there drinking and I failed many times in sobriety. And I want to tell you that failure is all right. I got up the next morning, was on my way to the North Hollywood Clubhouse. I passed a little service station. There was a help wanted sign in the window. I went in there. The manager came to me. I said, I saw your sign. He said, I'm looking for someone to pump gas on the swing shift. Can you do it? And that's a dangerous question to ask an alcoholic of my type. Because I wanted to tell him that I'd been with Standard Oil Company for four years and that I'd been in retail sales, industrial sales, and advertising and PR. You see, all of my life I wanted you to think that I was something that I was not. But for some reason, that morning all I said was, yes, I can do it. And I went to work pumping gas. And when I wasn't pumping gas, I was sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started to get just that much of what I could see in your eyes. And the night manager came to me one night and he said, Land, we've got to let you go. And I said, why aren't I doing a good job? He said, you're the best man we've got, but you're not bondable. Now, I wasn't bondable because I had a record. That doesn't mean a hard time record. But if you're in here at this convention and you're relatively new, you've got a record and it's called alcoholism. And I want to share with you that you'll stay, if you'll stick around and do all of the things that all of us do a day at a time that that record will be rubbed clean because mine was many, many years ago. Following that, someone suggested maybe I could sell encyclopedias. I said, I didn't do that. But I couldn't because I had so much fear going that I couldn't ring a doorbell. And you see, this is when I really had to get into the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and into the fourth and fifth step. You see, I got here still thinking I was different, thinking that if I told you anything that was going on within me, that you tell me I couldn't come back. And little did I know that there was nothing that I couldn't tell you that you hadn't experienced. Because you see, that's where the great identification is, is from the inside. All of us are alike. It doesn't matter from whence we come. If we're all alike. We all drank and used for the same reason. And I was to find that out very slowly. I never want to forget that first year. My total income was $1,237 and I was overpaid. But I want to tell you that a lot of doors have opened for me in recovery and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had some closed also. Where I've had difficulty, I've been in the hallways. But very early in my second year of sobriety, I was sitting in a meeting in West Los Angeles and the most beautiful lady I had ever seen in my life. Ever, ever. She was 5'10 and blonde and she walked to the podium to read chapter 5. And it's a program of attraction, and I wanted what she had. <laughs> and we fell in love and walked off into the AA sunset. Thank God she, she was an alcoholic and a lovely, lovely woman, and a lot of you in here knew her. And our daughter that's with me on this trip looks like her mother. I tell you, that lady taught me a lot. She had a lot of class, a lot of dignity, and she taught me about intimacy. I didn't know anything about intimacy. I thought I knew a lot about it. She taught me about relationships through her example, and I'm so grateful for that.
I want to back up just a second and tell you, because I forget this sometimes, that I did tell you a few minutes ago that I had a baby out of that first marriage. And I want to tell you that I didn't see her for 11 years as a direct result of my alcoholism. No less, no more. And when I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, that was amends that I knew I had to make and didn't want to. Because you see, I don't like pain in my life. And pain has been the greatest motivator of change that I've ever experienced. And thank God for it. Because it gets my attention. And I put it off and I put it off and I put it off and my sponsors finally said, Lynn, do it. And there was an attorney in Los Angeles that didn't want to get sober, but I kept pulling him off bar stool. And I'd like to tell you that I was carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was not. I simply wanted him to get visitation rights so I could go see that daughter who was in Chicago. And he was successful in doing that, and I'd been controlling it and manipulating, and any time I do that in my life, I am in real, real trouble even to this day. And I went to LAX and I got on an airplane to go to Chicago and I'd called her mother and I said, I'm coming back and I want to spend the weekend with Gail and Gail is our daughter and I hung up and I want to tell you I'd done everything but take a drink. Because I was on the worst dry drunk I pray that I'll ever be on and it landed at O'Hare and I went, I checked in a downtown hotel in Chicago and I called Alcoholics Anonymous because you taught me to do that regardless of where I am or what's going on in my life. And they sent me to a little place called the Mustard Seed. And I walked down out of that hotel to the mustard seed and I sat down in a meeting and got very quiet and listened. And I walked out of there and I felt more together than when I'd walked in and I went back to that hotel room. And I picked that telephone up and I called and her mother answered and I said, what time can I pick Gail up? And she said, Lynn, she doesn't want to see you. And thank God it happened that way because I want to tell you it put me on my knees that night in that hotel room. And I said, God, I can't handle it. You take it. Thy will be done. I gave it up. And I got up the next morning and I wrote her a separate letter of amends and I wrote her mother a separate letter of amends. And I rode that elevator to the ground and I mailed those two letters and I want to tell you I was given the second greatest gift I've been given in my lifetime. And that was the gift of freedom. Freedom from all of the things that had me trapped all of those years. I don't know about you, but I got here filled with secrets. And my secrets had secrets. And it took a long time for those to go away. But what freedom that is. And they go away. How do you surrender? A lot of guys come to me even today and say, Lynn, how do we... I tell you in my opinion how we all surrender through the first nine steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I think if we've worked those to the best of our ability, we are surrendered. We maintain in 10, 11, and 12. That's how we surrender. A lot of people say, when am I going to have a spiritual experience? When am I going to have a spiritual experience? I did that. I kept running around looking for a spiritual experience. I got to step 12 finally, and it tells us very simply, having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, and that's how we have a spiritual experience. But you know, I stayed in touch with that daughter, and I would send her a little small savings bonds or some money at Christmas and on her birthday, and uh, following Christmas, I'd send her a small savings bond, and shortly thereafter, I got a letter. Wasn't anything heavy like, Dear Dad, it just said, Dear Lynn, thanks for the savings bond, Gail. But you see, it opened the door of communication. That following spring, I was going back to Chicago on business. Pam and Allison and Jim, we'd all gone to the desert for a break. Came back, there was a letter there. I'd written them just saying I was coming. But I'd taken the expectations off of it. There was a letter there and it said, we're here and we'd like to see you. I went back and worked all day Monday. And I got in the cab that night to go out and to pick them up and I... 
Yeah, I was, I was, I was anxious. But I simply said, God, you take it. It's in your hands. Thy will be done. Because you see, when you brought me back here, you gave me a new God. You didn't give me a God that I'd grown up with or the perception of a God that I'd grown up with. Because my perception of the God that I was given was one of fear and one of judgment. And you gave me a God in here that was a friend and one I trusted. Because you see, I think our whole thing is one of surrender and acceptance on a daily basis. God, you handle it. I can. And I walked in that house and a young lady walked out of that bedroom and I broke down. I took she and her mother to dinner and I talked to her and I was able to look across the table and, and to tell her that all I wanted to be was her friend. And you know to mean it. And that's all because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I invited her to come to California and shortly thereafter she came to California. And she's been in our family ever since. She was to come to California and go to college. And several years ago, we all sat there, our family on one side and her mother and her new family and on the other side as she walked up on the stage to get that diploma. And her mother turned to me and said, Lynn, I can't thank you enough for all you've done for Gail. And I said, Denise, don't thank me. Thank Alcoholics Anonymous. Because you and I know that's where the credit goes. Pam and I were to have two products, two children that are products of Alcoholics Anonymous that never saw their mother or father take a drink because we met as sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Allison was born in Los Angeles. And we were moved to move to Laguna Beach 20 years ago. And her brother Jim was born there. And life was wonderful. Because at the center of everything was Alcoholics Anonymous. Things that started to happen in my life in every area it was shortly thereafter that I was to go to work for a firm and to meet a man that's here tonight that is a close friend of mine and an old business associate. And things started to happen and we left and we formed our own company and, uh, and Pete's sitting here and he uh, he's a Californian, Southern California boy, never been to Florida. And I convinced him in the early 70s we needed to come to Florida. And our timing was real bad. And we came down here, and uh, he's still here. And I went back to California. But I'm grateful for his friendship. He has a sister that's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, Wilder, I've been listening to you for 25 years. I think I better come hear you. And I'm glad he's here tonight. He's a dear friend. But things started to move. And life was wonderful. And John and Karen were in Laguna Beach with their family. And we all just, we did things, fun things together. The program was the center of everything. And it was wonderful. And the kids were growing up. And uh, I want to tell you, I've experienced it all. The joys and the sorrows and everything in between. And I have come to realize that life is what happens when you're making plans. And that everything in life is temporary. And this thing about a day at a time, we better live to its fullest. I just used to hear that in the beginning. I really understand it today. I was at the Gulf Coast Roundup in November of 1984. And I talked on a Saturday night and my friend Ramona from Oklahoma, who I love dearly, said, let's go to the room and call Pam. And we did. And Pam was at home with Jim and Allison and she had a lower back pain and she said she was mad about it. She said, it's nothing. 
But it was something. Because I was to fly home the middle of that next week and she was in the hospital and she had leukemia. And she was to live 11 months. And I want to tell you, it was the toughest year of my life. It was the toughest year for our family. And I had such a solid relationship with with the God of my choosing, what I call my God connection, but I had a lot of difficulty with it during that period. There were many a night that I would come down out of the UCLA hospital and I'd get in my car and I would sob all the way to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I would go in and take my seat because you'd taught me to do that. But you see, I prayed continually for the miracle. I kept asking God for the miracle and the miracle that I wanted was for that lady to live. And all of a sudden I realized that wasn't happening and I got real angry with God. But I kept doing the things that you taught me to do. And in October of 1985, we were all in the room when Pam stepped into the the next room. And I want to tell you that I've gotten out beyond that and the miracle that I prayed for happened. Because He allowed us to complete that relationship as a family, all of us together. And that's the miracle. And i got to tell you, I didn't know that if I'd get up off the pavement from that. But I want to tell you the strength of this fellowship because all of you were there in mass. AAs, Al-Anons, the program. What we do for each other is incredible. There is nothing like it on the face of this earth. Nothing. Because you were all there. And little by little, the three of us and Gail started to try to put our lives back together. And I've always had great communication with my kids. And you know, even during that year when Pam was dying, I would go home at night if I were going to Laguna Beach and wasn't staying in Los Angeles and they would very anxiously meet me at the door and we'd sit up in the middle of bed and I'd tell them the truth. But it's been difficult for them and it was difficult for me. But life goes on and we've talked about it and we've... You know, and, and none of us are exempt from anything. Things happen in life that we have no control over. I want to tell you that... Uh, I was able to just not work. I wasn't financially able not to work, but the last ten months that Pam lived, I was able just to be with her on a daily basis, and I'm grateful for that. But after she died, I had incredible financial problems, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And one word that's been key for me since I came back to this program has been willingness. And I just said to God, I'm willing. And a job appeared, and I really hadn't worked for anyone in years. And it was a job that uh, I had no experience in. And each morning I'd get in my car and I'd drive 75 miles each way. But I became willing. And this is when the attitude part kicked in, because I'll never forget that first morning. I thought, oh, I've got to drive 150 miles round trip. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I turned it around immediately and I said, thank you, God, for the opportunity. And every morning when I'd get in my car, I'd say, thank you, God, for the opportunity. And that went on, and uh, Jim and Allison started to grow up. They were a little ahead of me in some areas. And <laughs> but life goes on. 
And I'm grateful for that. A lot of things have happened along the way. My 27th and 28th year of sobriety have been as difficult as any I've had in sobriety, I want to tell you. I heard people talk for a lot of years about their committees. And I thought, oh, that must be bad to have a committee. And the committee is what goes on from the neck up. Well, I was given a committee about 20 months ago. And I want to tell you, if you allow that thing, it'll, you will self-destruct. But regardless of what's going on in my life, I don't care what it is. I never have a thought of a drink. Because you see, that's no longer an option for me. I still have thoughts of running. I'd like to get out of my financial responsibilities. I'd like to go to Maui and hide. I'd like to come to Florida and live and do nothing. But I don't act on them anymore because you've taught me not to do that. But I want to tell you about prayer and the steps and everything else. The one thing that has never failed me, never one time failed me, and it's the ism part of my illness, is to reach out to another alcoholic. Because you see, if I get involved in your life, then I'm not involved in my own. And that's what I think we're all about. We're here to serve one another. I absolutely believe that we're put here as caretakers to take care of one another. Because what we're all about is love and service. And that's the way it all started with Bill and Bob. It's just one drunk talking to another. Giving it away for free and for fun. It's real easy to come to conventions like this and to get on a high and feel wonderful and to get excited. But what you know, for all of us that are here, think of the numbers that are back in our home group that haven't experienced this. And that's where it is in Alcoholics Anonymous or for the newcomers and for the people in our home groups and on a day-to-day basis. It's sharing and caring and talking about living sober. And that's the gift. Willingness to give it all up. I don't care if it's our possessions, our children, our own beings, whatever it is, because if we don't become willing to give it all up, it's going to be taken away from us anyway. And I've already told you that I felt everything was temporary, including life itself. But the love that goes on here is incredible. The energy that we feel, the way we love one another, the way we reach out to one another, it's the greatest love affair in the world. And that's why it's the core of my being and it's the greatest single thing that's ever happened. Because you see, I love it. Even during the past year and a half, with the pain I've experienced in some areas of my life, I still show up here. Things happen. When I was invited to come to this convention, Bill called. I was to find out through the process that there was a lady here in Florida that had gone to school with Allison and Jim's mother and she had never known that Pam was a sober alcoholic. And we were to meet Miss Lynn Webster and I'm delighted she's here because I love her and I was to meet her before this convention. And she remembered 19 years ago sitting in a meeting in Winter Park and I identified, identified myself as Lynn W. And she thought, well, I'm Lynn W. too. And she was in her first year. And I've seen so many miracles happen here. I've seen them happen in our home groups. I've seen them happen in my life and in your life. And I want to share one other thing with you and then I'm going to quit because it's real important to me. 
It was suggested to me well over 20 years ago that I might have a control problem. I know none of you do, but it was suggested to me. So prior to moving to Laguna Beach, I turned myself into Al-Anon, a men's stag, on Monday night, and I went for about four and a half or five months, and I learned everything I needed to know. And I left there never to go back. And I used to stand at podiums like this and make all the Al-Anon jokes that we love to do, this and... But I want to tell you, five years ago this Thanksgiving, we had five different segments at our house because I'd met a new lady and her family were there and Allison and Jim and their grandmother and their uncles. And and I want to tell you, I was absolutely crazy because, you see, I'm the type of person that wants to fix everyone and make everything okay. And I thank God had the awareness that that was going on in my life. And I called a lady that I love a lot. And I took her to lunch and she said, Lynn, I think you better come to Al-Anon. And I want to tell you that I turned myself in. And I want to tell you, talking about gifts, it's as great as any gift that's ever been given to me. I didn't go in there with someone that had a lot of sobriety, knowing all about the steps and everything. I absolutely was able to go in there as a newcomer, knowing nothing about Al-Anon. And it's been the missing link for me. I want to tell you, yes, the steps are the same, but I want to tell you that there's a subtle difference. Because I've had the opportunity to go at a deeper level particularly in the fourth and fifth step in Al-Anon on some things that have been there for a long time with me. And you're going to hear a lovely lady, a lovely couple tomorrow from Laguna Beach. But you're going to hear Karen, who's a regular member and has been for a lot of years of one of my home groups in Al-Anon. It's the the Monday noon meeting in Laguna Beach, which Elsa C. started. And if I'm in town, I'm there every Monday. And I'm, I'm at my men's stag every Tuesday night, which we started almost five years ago. And I go to one other meeting during the week. I go to a minimum of three Al-Anon meetings a week. And I cannot tell you what this program has meant to me. Al-Anon will take care of your relationships. Yes, Alcoholics Anonymous takes care of our sobriety, but Al-Anon will take care of your relationships and your living along with AA. And I'm so grateful to that program. I cannot tell you. A great friend of mine named Tom W. said the one gift it's given you, Wilder, is the ability to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) And it really has taught me that and many others. But I love and cherish that program. And I'm going to give you an opinion and you're not going to like it and you're not going to do it because it took me, remember, 23 years to get there. But in my opinion, there's not an alcoholic, a sober alcoholic, that does not belong in a meeting of al Do as I say, not as I do. But I tell you, the Al-Anons, don't get nervous because the A's aren't going to run through the doors. <laughs> and they wouldn't be that excited about it anyway. But I tell you, I'm so very grateful for this program and for both of them and how they've worked in my life because I want to tell you the program of Al-Anon has absolutely saved my sanity the last 20 months. And I'm so very grateful for that. I'm for grateful for the whole, the whole deal. You know, families get sick together, I see them recover together, and it's so beautiful. I'm going to close with what I always close with, and it's a story I tell, and it really sums up everything I'm trying to say tonight. And it's the story of a man that owned a fine Swiss watch, and he loved it more than anything that he'd ever had in his lifetime.
And it quit running on him one day. And he wound it and it ran for a while and it stopped running. And he went through this over and over and he took it to a series of watchmakers. And he knew not what else to do. And one morning very early he was sitting in his den with his desk lamp on and one more time he was winding his watch. And he turned it over. And he noticed what he thought were a couple of scratches he'd never noticed before. And he got a magnifying glass out of the desk. And he looked at it very closely and they weren't scratches at all. It was a small inscription. And it said very simply, in case of trouble, return to maker. And I love that. In case of trouble, return to maker. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love being sober. But most of all, I love all of you. Thank you.